0: Welcome to Exaltation. This is Father David Masterson bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Our scripture today is Genesis chapter two, verses four, 15 to 17. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Then God took man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 2 contains a very interesting phrase in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. We find this phrase seven times in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, which is the opening section of the book. This is because the individual person is always subsumed in his seed, in his ancestry. Put another way, the person is always the product of his progenitor. That is why the biblical story of an individual like Noah or Abraham opens up a whole new chapter of that person's after story. There is an Arabic saying, whoever begets is not dead. One life is continued in the story of his seed after him. This is important because the modern Western way of looking at an individual is to see him as sandwiched between birth and death, having value only in and of himself without reference to any larger social setting of family, tribe, or nation. This is part of the sin of self-absorption and selfishness. God's way of looking at man is much more corporate. We are part of someone else, and our Father is very important as a godly head from whom flow untold blessings to the generations after us. So why does Moses use the phrase, these are the generations of the heaven and the earth, in 2 verse 4, when we are not talking about a human? Because he wants to tie the creation of heaven and earth to God himself as the progenitor of life. God is the seed, if you will, of the created order. It is God's creative breath that produces everything that is. There is a whole new after story of God who manifests himself in his creation. He truly is the cause of all things and the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Now in verse 7, We read, God formed man of the dust of the ground. The verb formed expresses the relation of craftsmen to material with the implication of both skill and ownership. Paul cites this idea in Romans chapter 9, where he uses the imagery of the potter and the clay to describe God's sovereignty in his plan of salvation. God is the potter. We are the clay. We get into all kinds of trouble when we forget this truth. So we see in verse 7 that man's body is composed of the same material as the animal kingdom. Carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, iron, and so forth. But God not only formed a physical body for Adam, but made him a living being by putting into him his personality. Man received the breath of the Spirit of God at his creation, making him capable of knowing, loving, and serving his Creator and Lord. The life of God's personality animated Adam so that he became a living spirit. The life of God caused the other animals to live, but not as an immortal being. This is why after the fall of man into sin, Adam becomes spiritually dead towards God and must receive the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit within him in order to become spiritually alive in Christ and able to know and love God again. Look at verse 8. And the Lord planted a garden for man to live in. The story as we're seeing it is narrowing down to Adam and Eve in the garden in order to test Adam's loyalty to God. This garden was truly paradise. The Hebrew word for Eden means delight, and the Arabic word means tender loveliness. God made every tree that is pleasing to the sight to grow, meaning beautiful in form and color, attractive and appealing, Flowers, trees, and shrubs surrounded Adam, filling his senses with pleasant fragrances and colors and filling his mouth with luscious sweetness. The Garden of Eden was truly luxuriant, delightful, and pleasing, an experience of overpowering beauty and loveliness. In chapter 17 of his wonderful book Out of the Silent Planet, C.S. Lewis has a description of an Eden-like landscape. He writes of his chief character Ransom, The beauty of this new forest as it opened before him took his breath away. It was a sapphire twelve miles in diameter set in a border of purple. Amidst the lake there arose a gently sloping pyramid, or like a woman's breast an island of pale red, smooth to the summit and on the summit a grove of trees man had never seen before. Their smooth columns had the gentle swell of the noblest beech trees, but these were taller than a cathedral spire on earth, and their tops broke into golden flower bright as tulips and huge as a summer cloud. This bright grove lying so still and secret in its colored valley, soaring with inimitable grace so many hundreds of feet into the wintry sunlight, and at every step the warmth of the valley came deliciously up to him. He breathed in the sweet, faint fragrance of the giant blossoms. This was the glory of the Garden of Eden, a place of exceptional goodness, beauty, color, order, and lavish vitality. The Lord's provision is a model of loving parental care. Man is carefully sheltered in the Garden of Eden, but not smothered. On every side there are exquisite discoveries and encounters awaiting Adam to develop his powers of discernment, gratitude, and choice. Into this marvelous setting God placed Adam, along with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God establishes, enhances, and brings to fullness all of the created order, and then places Adam into the garden. God gives life to all and breath to every living thing. Do we truly understand what this means? We are utterly dependent upon God for every second of life we enjoy. The ability to breathe, to think, feel, eat, sleep, love, understand, and worship. All of this is the overflow of the generosity of God towards His creation. In Him, we live and move and have our being. This is literally true, my friends. You cannot live, move, think, breathe, eat, sleep, love, or worship without the living God at the center animating and giving life and sustaining you. Now, if we look at verses 10 to 14, we realize that the Garden of Eden was a literal place. It really existed. It was probably located in what is now southern Armenia, northeast of Israel. And God created a river that watered the garden, causing rich vegetation to grow, From this river came four other rivers, two of which are the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Scientists have discovered that the Tigris and the Euphrates did originate from one source as the Bible indicates. The first and second rivers, the Pishon and the Gihon, originally flowed east to west in the same area but have disappeared, probably due to the great flood that we will discover when we come to Genesis chapter 7. Now God put Adam into the Garden of Eden not simply to be idle, but to cultivate and keep it. It is very important to understand the relationship of Adam to the garden. The garden was not created as a place of entertainment for man, as though Adam was sitting around every day in a lawn chair watching the sun rise and set while sipping on his favorite drink. God gave Adam work to do, daily work, as his service to his creator. The plants, the trees, the ground needed to be cared for. It needed to be tilled and cultivated. The gardens needed to be fenced against the animals who would forage for their food from the ground. Work as God intended work to be is a good thing. In the modern world, we look at work as a curse. Thank God it's Friday is the modern motto of work because we can't wait to end work and play on the weekend. But God planned work as satisfying and fulfilling for man. Because work is not just a way to make money, but a calling, a vocation, whereby man may glorify God with the product of his hands. The English translation in our Bibles doesn't do justice to the meaning of the Hebrew here. It actually reads, to cultivate the ground and to keep the ground. We need to see a relationship of the story of the ground and Adam's role in cursing the ground. The Lord God created the heavens and the earth. He then made man from the dust of the ground, and Adam's name means from the ground. Instead of carefully tending to the ground and being a good steward of it, Adam disobeyed God and brought a curse upon the ground and every living thing. Now in verse 16 and 17 we discover that among the trees of the garden there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This was not a magical tree, as though the fruit conveyed some power to Adam if he ate it, rather this tree was a test of Adam's loyalty and obedience to the will of God. Why does God ask man to obey Him? because he wants man to flourish. He wants man to be the fullest being possible, the happiest, the most blessed with his mind, body, and spirit functioning together at maximum capacity. What makes man most alive, most happy, most satisfied, most blessed, and most fulfilled? Obedience to God, walking in partnership with God, So God set before Adam a single prohibition. Don't eat from this particular tree. From all the thousands of other trees, plants, and fruits you may eat, but not from this one tree. This verse reveals to us the incredible cupidity of man. You will recall that cupidity means covetousness, the desire of the mind to possess what is forbidden. Here was an abundance of food, a literal feast of every meal in the most beautiful, lavish, delightful place on earth. Adam was in paradise. All that he needed was graciously provided for him and God gave him meaningful work to do to keep him occupied. Nevertheless, the hearts of men are easily seduced and lured away from righteousness into wrongdoing. You are listening to Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson, bringing you the beautiful, the good, and the true. Let's continue our lesson. God promised Adam, in the day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Underscore this in your mind. Sin always produces death. The problem with the type of death that sin produces is that it is not always readily apparent. It is first and foremost invisible and spiritual but it eventually produces deadly consequences in our physical lives. How did man die? He died spiritually due to his disobedience to the Lord. The moment Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their union and communion with God was disrupted and they died spiritually. What does it mean to die spiritually? To die spiritually means to be out of fellowship and relationship with God. It means to be left to our own devices and our own judgments in making moral choices. It means being surrendered to our own passions, because we no longer have the life of God within us to lead us in the path of holiness and virtue. It means that man has to make his own determination of what is good and evil, rather than receiving that knowledge from His Creator and living in the good of it. But then, spiritual death produces physical consequences. Ezekiel 33 verse 10 says, Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus you have spoken, saying, Surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us, and we are rotting away in them do you see the physical consequence of sin? As a consequence of Adam's sin, the creation also began to deteriorate. Romans 8.20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, and we know that the creation itself groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. The long-term effect of sin is eternal death. If a man dies in this life without Christ, without being transformed by the new creation of the Holy Spirit, he will experience eternal separation from God in hell, everlasting spiritual death excluded from the goodness and beauty and truth and holiness of God forever. This is the ultimate despair and calamity of unbelieving man. Now remember that God made man governor of the world. He is to steward the earth, to cultivate it till it harvest its goodness and have dominion over it, but in all things under the sovereign rule of God. Therefore the command not to eat the fruit of this one tree— was Adam's first lesson in obedience, that he might know that he has a director and Lord of his life, on whose will he must depend for the sustaining of that life. Always remember that God invites us into relationship with Him so that we might know experientially our dependence upon Him. We live in conscious dependence upon God at every moment. As we said before, in Him we live and move and have our being. Gas in the car, oil in the lamp, God in the man, Christ in the Christian. Now verse 18 opens up another dimension. It says, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. All that Adam's nature as a man needed was to be provided by the creation of a helper. God made woman to be Adam's associate, to assist him to live well. The woman is a helper, one corresponding to Adam in shape, constitution, disposition, and affection. The woman is a kind of second self to be near him, to serve him, and to comfort him. Verse 19 and 20 says, God brings all the creatures before Adam to give them a name. This is to develop Adam's faculty of speech, to affirm his authority over the animals, and to display his vast knowledge in being able to give proper names to all creatures. The picture that we have in the Bible of the first man is quite different from the picture of the first man as the result of evolution. Instead of an ape-like creature slowly learning speech by imitating the grunts of the other animals, Adam is a fully mature being with vast knowledge and speech capability. He is beautifully and wonderfully made and capable of doing the work of naming that God gave Adam to do. The primary reason God brings all the animals before Adam is not only to name them, but also to create in Adam an experiential awareness that he was alone. He was without a mate and needing a helper suitable for him. So verse 21 says, The Lord God put Adam to sleep and took one of his ribs from his side and formed a woman. Man was made as a social being, as a communal being. He was made to enjoy fellowship, not to indulge in a quest for power. Remember Ebenezer Scrooge? He was the protagonist of Charles Dickens' wonderful little book, A Christmas Carol. He spent most of his life living alone with his piles and piles of gold coins, but then He discovered the joy of relationship with others, and he touched the lives of many in his town with his generosity. Man does not truly live unless he loves another, someone who is on his own level. So the woman is here presented as a partner and a counterpart to Adam. As one commentator writes, She was not made out of his head to surpass him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but from his side to be equal to him, near his heart, and held dear by him. Puritan writer Matthew Poole writes, Eve is neither the husband's mistress to usurp authority over him, nor his slave to be abused and trampled on by him but she is to be kindly treated like a companion with respect and affection. The human pair differed from all the other animal pairs in that Eve was created from Adam. Once having created woman, God brought her to Adam to perform the first holy marriage verses 23 to 25 capture some very interesting qualities and characteristics of marriage as god intended it you may want to write these down marriage as god designed it is something of glory and splendor and honor and beauty first man is prior to woman and serves as her loving head and protector there is no notion of male domination here That comes as a perversion of marriage after the fall of man into sin. Second, man is male and female. The two sexes are truly complementary, the woman corresponding to the man as a helper perfectly suitable for him. It is Adam who names his companion Isha, which in the Hebrew word, means man with a feminine termination the woman had her source from adam she is woe man from adam truly bone of his bone and flesh of his flesh third the union of a man and woman in marriage is a permanent exclusive god sealed bond god himself like the father of the bride leads the woman to the man to be joined to him marriage is permanent and indissoluble the man and woman cleave to each other therefore there can be no divorce or polygamy fourth marriage is a unity of persons not simply a combination of bodies interests or affections one flesh refers to man and woman becoming one permanent unity, entirely and inseparably united. It is an expression of intimate and continual communion and union. Fifth, marriage is to produce complete ease, lack of tension and stress, and lack of guilt or shame. There is an element of calm, of rest, of peace in a good marriage. Verse 25 says that the man and the wife were naked and were not ashamed. There was no greed or competition, no power plays, no dishonor or distrust that would create disunity. One commentator says, Man and woman were naked, but yet they were not naked. Their bodies were the clothing of their internal glory, and their internal glory was the clothing of their nakedness. There was a holy purity and innocence and beauty about Adam and Eve. Another commentator says, Never had a bridal pair been so beautifully and radiantly appareled. The unclothed bodies of our first parents were swathed in transfiguring light, in their case the outshining of their holy souls, which as yet were the undimmed and unmarred image of their Maker capable of receiving and reflecting His glory. Sadly, the beauty of holiness, innocence, and purity have departed from the souls of men. So now must a Christian couple put on the Lord Jesus Christ and fill their home with the light of His love. The Union of a Christian Man and Woman is an expression of man's person as God created him male and female. When male and female are united, man is complete as God originally created him to be. Now stay tuned to this station next week for we will look deeply into Genesis chapter 3 to discover God's wonderful truth for man in those pages. May the Lord richly bless you. For of him and to him and through him are all things. To him be the glory both now and forevermore. Amen. Been listening to the program Exaltation. I'm Father David Masterson with Godet Ministries. You may reach us on the web at gaudetministries.org. That's G-A-U-D-E-T-E-Ministries.org. This gospel outreach is entirely listener-supported. Please help us proclaim the gospel on the radio to a needy world. You may donate online at our website. Your gift, large or small, is gratefully appreciated. Until next time, may God richly bless you with this word of encouragement from the prophet Isaiah. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable.